Good morning, Pacific. It's a pleasure to introduce you once again to uh, Cindy Parker. Uh, many of you know her. You may have traveled with her to Israel. How, how many of you in the crowd have made that such a trip? And I understand it was a good Yay. trip. You came back alive and uh, all those good things. Um, I, was, I haven't had the privilege yet of taking yet. such a trip. And, um, <laughs> and uh, maybe one day. But I was at that talk that you gave that one Saturday when you visited us a few mm -hmm. months ago. And uh, my heart just said, the whole church needs to hear a little bit of this. And particularly on this kind of Sunday where, you know, after a CCK event that occurred, coldest night of the year event, where the whole community gathered to do a work of justice in the world mm -hmm. together. Um, your word um, those months ago, so, so fit, hmm. um, perhaps a way of imagining uh, what it means to be a church in the world. And so um, I'm not exactly sure what you're going to be talking about today, <laughs> milk and honey, but uh, can we just welcome her with a warm uh, applause? It is really fun to be back with you again. I am hardcore falling in love with Vancouver, and I happen to really love this community, and it's fun coming back this time because there's more of you that I know, so I get to participate in just greeting people by name and saying, hi, and you know me, and you're asking, hey, how's your book coming, and when, when are we going to see the printed version of it? And all these other fun things. And I feel a little bit like I, too, am belonging a little bit to your really beautiful community that is here. And since I was here last time, you've been through a few transitions. Things are changing in your community. And yet things are not changing. You are investing in the people who are around you. You are embodying uh, how you feel your community is supposed to be, and that's amazing. And so where do we go to find encouragement for how we are supposed to be together as a community in good times, in bad times, in transition times? And I would say Deuteronomy is the perfect place to go. I actually think Deuteronomy is the perfect place to go for everything. Um, but I can also make it fit to this particular circumstance. So we're going to go to Deuteronomy. And there are times, I mean, unless I have been able to convince you that Deuteronomy is the most perfect book, um, some people, like, hear me say, hey, we're going to talk about Deuteronomy, and already they're, like, reaching for their phones to pull out social media because they're like, oh, gosh, Deuteronomy. Right? There's so many assumptions we have about the book that I would say are actually not correct assumptions. Uh, we're going to tackle three of those today. One of them is we are bringing our own assumptions to the text. We don't bother to do as much contextualization as we really should do so that we understand the text correctly. Um, and so I wanted us to read that Deuteronomy 8 passage because what happens is if we don't contextualize what's going on, if we don't actually see what the physical reality of the land really is, then we read things like Deuteronomy 8, and there's valleys and hills and there's springs of water, and we read that and we go, oh, that just sounds so delightful. It's beautiful. 
In fact, you might end up with pictures in your head of something almost like paradise, right? And so the reason reading things without really understanding the context is it does change our theology. And so if we think God is calling his people into a land and the land is like paradise, valleys, hills, rivers, olive oil. I mean, who doesn't want bread, olive oil, and wine? I mean, it's perfect. But the problem is then we think God is calling them into a really delightful place. Like that's what he said is good. Good is perfection, idealism. And then the problem is we don't actually have very much compassion for the real life experience of people in the Bible. Right, so if we don't contextualize, we come up with our own version of theology, and then we end up saying of the people, of the Israelites, well, why couldn't they make, why did you have problems doubting? God gave you paradise. Why couldn't you stay faithful to the covenant? Why couldn't you X, Y, Z, right, threw in the right Canadianisms there, um, Right? Like, so why couldn't you? In fact, we then follow up with, if I had been there, right, I totally would have never doubted God. If he brought me out of Egypt, I wouldn't have doubted in the wilderness, right? So this, when we improperly contextualize them, we end up creating a theology that's not actually in the biblical text, Right, so because I know you are PCC, and I'm very familiar with some of the teachings you've had in your past, and because you're a church that does a really good job contextualizing, I would say you probably actually know that the land that Israel went into was a marginalized land. It was pressed between the effects of the sea and the effects of the desert. It is broken apart by massive V-shaped valleys. It is a difficult land where water or where uh, water is very precious. It's a precious commodity. Where life is precarious, where people die young, where scarcity is the norm, where people have to rely on subsistence living in the land. That is their norm. And when these people heard God is taking you into a land that is filled with hills and valleys and streams and you have the food that you're going to have, they actually understood that the land is going to provide for them, but not in abundance, right? The lands that are to the north and to the south, those are the easy lands. Mesopotamia and Egypt, those are the lands that can create world-dominating empires. And we could say, well, why didn't God just let them go to Mesopotamia? And it's interesting to me because Abraham came out of Mesopotamia, and then Abraham went down into Egypt. And God said, no, you need to come back up. So he comes back up to the land God told him to go to. Jacob goes up to Mesopotamia. Jacob's descendants down into Egypt. They could have stayed 
in these land areas where life is easier, where the resources of the land can create or help you create a world-dominating empire. But God called them into a land that was marginal, that was difficult. We could say, or we could say, I am going to say, another one of Deuteronomy's really favorite terms is the land of milk and honey. This land that is actually divided into different ecosystems. A land where there are farmers, where there are shepherds. A land where the barrenness of the eastern side of the land means that you can't farm that side of the land. Only shepherds can be there. It is difficult and hard and everything is going to kill you out in the wilderness areas. Or the land of the farmer where the soil is rich, where you might have access to just enough water to grow just enough produce to actually supply what you need for your family. So we have a land that is very diverse. All the hills and valleys are actually creating different ecosystems. All of the ecosystems are slightly different one from the other, which means the real lived experience of all of these people in the different portions of the land is different. So the land they're going into is actually going to tempt them to pull apart into their own little communities. Because the farmers over there don't have the same lived experience as the shepherds over there. And yet God says, into this land I want you to go and I want you to be my people, my singular people. Okay, so you have a very difficult land, the land of hills and valleys and streams. You have the land of milk and honey, which has the connotation of a good land, but not the connotation of paradise. The land of milk and honey is a recognition that this is a land that is difficult, where there are going to be different people pulled apart, and God wants them to come together as one people. Okay, how on earth do you do that? How do you take people with very different lived experiences in life and pull them together so that they make one cohesive and real people group? I almost said congregation. That's like maybe contextualizing a little too much for today. But how do you pull all these different individuals and get them to act together as one community? Okay, well, this brings us to another uh, assumption that we have about the book of Deuteronomy, which is the law code. And the law code, we all go, oh, <laughs> that, the law code, that just doesn't sound interesting or something that I really want to dive into. The book of Deuteronomy actually is very pastoral. The book of Deuteronomy comes at the end of the Pentateuch. And when we look earlier in the Pentateuch, there's a lot of third-person pronouns that are used. He, she, it, they. Right? It's telling these big, huge, long narratives. Deuteronomy turns that and says, you. And Deuteronomy is really good at going, you, as an individual. You, as an individual. And if I can throw in Americanisms, all y'all, all y'all together. 
Deuteronomy does both. It's very pastoral in recognizing you're going into a land that is going to pull you apart. So how is it you're going to come together? And Deuteronomy starts going, let's focus on you, the individual, your attitude, your health, your attitude towards God, and then all y'all's attitude to belonging together as a community and to being God's people. And one of the ways Deuteronomy does this is it keeps repeating the word remember. It's one of the things that drew me towards this book to begin with, was this repetition of remember. And it says, remember, before you go into the land, remember who you are. When you're in the land, remember who you are. When you get kicked out of the land and you're in foreign places, Remember who you are and who your God is. Remember. And even though Deuteronomy is the third repetition of the law code for the Israelites, the striking thing is Deuteronomy never says, remember the law. Deuteronomy always says, remember what God has already done. Remember how much God loves you. That's what you're supposed to remember at all times. Remember, he's already been generous to you. He has already pulled you out of oppression. He has already provided for you. He has already done all these different things. And when you're so overwhelmed by how much love God has shown, this is how you show appropriate, this is the appropriate response. And that's where we get the law code. The law code comes in saying, if you just remember who God is and you want to respond in the right way, how do you respond? You be like him. Well, how am I like him in my time and place? And the law code says, well, feed the orphan, take care of the widow. You know, we get the law code stems out of that. But the people are never told to remember the laws. They're always told. Just remember how much God has already done for you. When Deuteronomy talks about the remembering what God has done, again, Deuteronomy is going to say, remember you as an individual. It is your individual responsibility to remember what God has done. And so Deuteronomy will say, use physical things to help you remember Right? So this is where we get like binding prayers around your arm, put, put it between um, your eyes on your forehead. It's a make sure that as you go to interact with other people and you use your hand to extend towards others, that you're remembering why you're doing it. You're doing it in response to what God has already done. When you are looking at the world around you, when you are looking at society, your, your um, ability to perceive and then to judge what is happening, make sure that goes through the filter of what God has already done for you. Deuteronomy then says, also mark the doorposts of your house, right? Make sure that as you leave private space to go out into the community, that there's something physical there to say, remember the way you act at home and the way you act out in public is the same. You as an individual, you are responsible for that. 
But then all y'all together as a community, you're also supposed to remember together. You come together to remember. And so the Israelites then are, um, they follow a whole series of festivals that carry them through the remembrance of their identity of what God has already done for them. And they marked the city gates so that as they left their city community out into the greater world, they remember we're acting the same way together as a group as we are when we go out into the greater world around us. We are remembering that we're choosing to act because of the way that God has already acted prior. We're, it, we're acting in response. We're not earning any kind of salvation. We're not earning God's favor. We're just responding to his proactive love towards us. Set up piles of rocks on the ground so that as you are walking, your kids say, hey, what is that doing there? And you're rehearsing your story as an entire group of people. The, we are the people that God chose. And because of that, we are choosing to respond to him in a very particular way. I wanted to go through a, a poem with you, a Hebrew poem, uh, because I think it... Uh, highlights this concept really nicely, and, and it belongs to um, chapter 10 in Deuteronomy, which is a little bit of a, if you could just summarize the whole book, like before we even get to all the laws, all the list of do's and don'ts, if you could just say what is the overall purpose of what's happening, this beautiful little poem is kind of a, this is how to uh, get at the heart of what Deuteronomy is all about. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 10 with me. Most English Bibles don't write this out as a poem, and so we don't read it as poetry. Uh, but it is actually written to be a poem. So I'm going to start first in verse 12. 12 and 13 are the ones that say, if we could boil this all down, what is the essence of what is going on in this book? And the answer to that comes in verses 12 and 13. It says, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? Right? And remember, this is a book of the law. So of all of these laws, all these things, what is it God requires that you do? Right? And the answer is, fear the Lord your God. Walk in all of his ways. Love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul embody the love that you have for the things God has already done for you. And keep the Lord's commandments, his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. And now we enter into the poetry. And in this poetry, we have three different ideas. And so we're actually going to read it based on what you see on the screen. The ideas start at the top over here on the left. And we work our way down. And then the poem repeats itself. So if you're accustomed to reading poetry, you know how you have line A, line B, line C. And then you'll get A prime, B prime, C prime. I don't know if this. So there, there's a structure. And you're supposed to read the entire thing together because the lines end up paralleling themselves. And the, it highlights the big idea of what's going on. Okay, so the very first line. We start with large, grandiose language. Behold, this is in verse 14. Behold, 
To the Lord your, or your, the Lord your God belongs the heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Right? So we start with identifying first who God is. Who is he? The one to whom all things belong. The heavens and then the highest heavens or the cosmos. The earth and everything in it. Everything. To him belongs everything. So this grand God of the universe. This is who we're talking about. Line B. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affections to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all people as it is this day. So what did this creator God do? He chose you. But it's not just you in this moment, it's you and your ancestors. It's the long story. He chose you and has been involved with you, right? So he, this creator God, actually narrowed his focus and said, and to you I give all my affections and my loyalty. Oh. Line C, verse 16. So. It's a so therefore, right? Now now's the call to action. Circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. So what do you do in response when the creator God chooses you is faithful to you? Circumcision is a sign of the covenant. And so here Deuteronomy says, take the sign, the physical sign of the covenant and internalize it. Remove the hard layer around your heart so that it is now soft, so that you can respond, so that you can love God with heart, soul, mind, strength. Now, let's repeat and see how this poem continues. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Right, so now we're going, the creator God is also the master of all. And the language that is used is actually common ancient Near Eastern language to talk about kings. Kings who often put themselves in the positions of gods. And here Deuteronomy is going, ah, oh, no. He's the actual God of all gods. He is the master of all masters. He is the Lord of anyone else who calls himself Lord. This one, it's so majestic and it's so huge. And what does this God, this majestic God do? This would be line B, verse 18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. This majestic God, the one who's taking the titles of what kings normally are calling themselves. This majestic God is humbling himself and is taking care of the people on the perimeter of society. The people who are vulnerable. That majestic God, right? It's, so you see how we have this creator God who chose you and is faithful to you. Through the long history of your people is the same majestic God who knows how to humble himself to take care of those who are marginalized. And so, line C, 
this is going to be our second call to action. And so what do we do? In verse 19, so show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And so you respond to this majestic God who humbles himself by doing the exact same thing that majestic God has done. You go and you care for people. Now, what is interesting, what I love so much about this poem is if you read that, those bottom lines, the C and the C prime lines, the call to action lines, what do we see? At, to response of what Deuteronomy is going, how are we going to boil down the law? What is the essence? What is the heart of this book? Love God. Love people. Ah, we see that in other places in the Bible, don't we? What is the essence of the law? These conversations show up quite a bit in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where people go, Jesus, how do you boil down the law? He's like, ah, oh, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, strength. Love your neighbor. It's Deuteronomy 10. That's it. That is what the law comes down to. Everything else is how to do it more specifically given the circumstances that you're in. The book of Deuteronomy ends with these great poems that are also saying God is so majestic, he's amazing, you're going to forget, you're going to go into exile. You're going to have to remember who God is. And the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying Moses doesn't even get to go into the land. And there's almost this, well, so what happens? This anticipation. We know we need to circumcise our hearts. And Deuteronomy 30 says we will need another covenant that will help us to circumcise our hearts, to write the law on our hearts, to internalize what God wants us to do and who he wants us to be. But we're left in suspension of, but that hasn't happened yet. The gospel writers and Paul work really hard to say Jesus is the one who came to initiate a new covenant. And that new covenant is, again, your individual responsibility and all y'all's responsibility. But that covenant is going to be written directly on your heart. What is the purpose of that covenant? Love God. Love your neighbor. That's what he wants you to do. So I'd say in, like, what is it that we can kind of take away from the book of Deuteronomy specific to this particular church? And I would say, well, we live in a land of milk and honey. Not literally, right? I mean, this is metaphorically. But the land of milk and honey, if we go back to the beginning, we realize the land of milk and honey is recognizing that, land, that where you are contextualized is actually quite difficult. And it will try to pull you apart and put you into your smaller communities where you are much more focused on yourself as an individual. Milk and honey is a land where things can be really, really difficult, like the land of the shepherd. Things can also be a little bit more secure where you have all the needs met that you have. So in the land of plenty, in the land of want, 
when life is really good, when life is just about to smother you, in this land, live the right way. Right, And so I would say as a community, as you go through all these transitions and things are shifting in your own lives, remember the bad context is not demonstrating that God has left you. That's just part of life, the good and the bad. Can you be faithful to God in both of those contexts? How on earth do you do that? Well, you do it as an individual, but you also do it as a community of people. You pull together. So you look after your own spiritual health, your own spiritual development, your own love for God. You make sure you yourself are embodying what God has called you to embody. But then you come together as well as a community to remind yourselves we're all in this together to find security in the fact that you're not all alone in this, that God has been faithful throughout the years. He's going to remain faithful. And you have to help each other remember that that is the truth of what it is that we believe. Right. Why are we doing this? Why should we um, kind of exercise our own self-restraint? Why do I go through the effort? Because God did it first. Because God showed up, has been showing up for thousands of years. Because God bothers to be uh, involved in the lives of his people. Because God provides. Because God loves the orphan, the widow. God loves the people who are marginalized. God cares to bring them in to the middle, to make them a part of the community. And if God cares, then I should care. But also why? Why? Because Jesus said the kingdom of God is on earth now as it is in heaven. And the invitation is come and help us build that kingdom. Make it visible. Put it on display. That's a beautiful invitation to be given. God's kingdom is here. Would you like to participate? Yeah, actually, I would. Great. This is how you embody it. This is how you do it. And the idea is when you build the kingdom that reflects that kind of king, people end up saying, who is this king that controls this kingdom that you are investing in? Like, I would love to tell you about who that king is. So Pacific, I would say, please remember You're already doing so much of this. You have already grabbed hold of this vision. And as you move forward in the good times, in the bad, remember that you are individually responsible for plugging in. But as a community, you are also responsible. And you're doing it as a reaction to what God has already done, not to earn anything from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the creator God, the God who is God of gods and Lord of lords and master of all, the one who has so beautifully humbled himself to interact on this human level with individuals and with communities of people through the long years of history, 
before you we stand and we tremble and and we marvel at the generosity of the love that you have poured out and may it be in response to that love that we seek to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and transform our own lives and participate in this larger church community. And may we as your people shine forth as your witnesses to the world. May we build and continue to invest in the kingdom of God that ends up being such a light in a dark place and that ends up being an attractive model to which other people come. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.